right. If you have a Bible or a smartphone, please turn with me to Psalm 16. Psalm 16. We are into week three of our series, uh, Summer in the Psalms. And uh, once again, the sun has disappeared. Really need to uh, rename the series. Last week, we looked at uh, Psalm 23, arguably the most well-known psalm, one of the most well-known scriptures. And we saw that in Psalm 23, David joyfully explained the privileges of being a believer in the true God. God is like a, a shepherd who protects and provides for his people. And we also saw that this psalm, even though it is in the Old Testament, points us forward to Christ, the Good Shepherd, and the salvation offered in the Gospel. At the cross of Christ, Jesus gave up the privileges and blessings of Psalm 23 so that we could experience them. That is an enormous truth, that Jesus gave up the privileges and blessings that are in that psalm so that we ourselves could experience them. It helps us understand the cross in a new light. And this week we come to, to Psalm 16. Next week we will be in uh, Psalm 8, uh, and uh, that will be for Christmas. We will be doing a psalm for Christmas and we'll see the, uh, the incarnation of Christ inherent in that psalm. Psalm 16 is what is commonly called a, a messianic psalm. Now, I personally believe, based on Jesus' words in Luke uh, 24, verse 44, that the, all the, the law, the prophets, and the psalms all point to Christ. I think you could make a strong case that all psalms are messianic psalms, that they point to Christ. But there are a category of psalms specifically known as the messianic psalms because they very explicitly point to Christ. And we'll see that in this one, Psalm 16, because it is used in two different places in the New Testament. That will help us interpret and understand how this psalm points us to Christ. So, without further ado, Psalm 16, I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. A miktam of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. 
You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is God's word to us this morning. It starts off in verse 1. by The psalm is called a miktam of David. How exactly you pronounce that, I don't know. What we can get out of that phrase is that it is written by David, King David. But it's called a miktam. What does that mean? We don't know. We honestly don't know. Probably a certain type of psalm, a collection of psalms. Scholars This is one of those things where you just need to say, I don't know. Scholars aren't exactly sure and they'd be uh, speculating to, uh, to guess. But it is in God's word and it is a, it is a wonderful psalm. Let me give you a very brief breakdown if you're looking at the text to how to understand what's happening here. In verse one, there's a, a prayer for protection. Then in verses 2 to 6, the psalmist states his reliance on God. That's a big theme here, relying on God. Verses 7 to 8, he worships God for the blessings of this life. And then verses 9 to 11, he worships God for the blessings of eternal life. So do we see that? We see reliance on God as a main theme, worshiping God for the blessings in this life, and then worshiping God for the blessings in the next life, eternal life. That is that is what is happening in this psalm. We'll start off in verse 1. It says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. One line of prayer. It's the only line of prayer in this psalm. He asked God to preserve him. Literally, he asked him to keep him, to protect him from Danger. Same word used of Adam in the garden to keep the garden, to protect it from evil. But from what is David asking for protection? It's not a prayer for protection from enemies or danger like so many of the other Psalms. I would say, based on what is happening in the Psalm, that David is praying that God would protect his faith. That his faith and his trust in God would be protected. He says, for you and you I take refuge. It is of key value in David's life that he has a life of faith and trust in God. He asks that that be protected. That he would not live his life alone. That he would not go his own way. That God would not be far from him. He asks for the protection of his faith. One of the things I love about the Psalms is just how bold and God-centered they are. They're just just everywhere. They go right back to to the first cause. They say, God, you protect my faith. You guide me. You are my inheritance. The Lord is my shepherd. God is a big God and his people find hope in him. There's something completely countercultural in this, and it is something that churches of all types around the world need to make sure they do not lose. A vision of a big God who helps small people. 
and that includes myself, small person. In light of God, everyone is small, hopeless, helpless, and needy. But God is big, and He is our refuge in times of trouble. He goes on to say, verse 2, He relies upon God in this life. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. He speaks of his reliance on God and uses two different words for God here. You might have in your Bible, the Lord is, the word Lord is capitalized. That means it's the word Yahweh, the covenant name of God as he relates to his people. But the other mention of Lord is the word Adonai. You might have heard it. And it's a name specifically referring to God's sovereignty. So in praising God's name, David is saying that God is the, a sovereign, personal, covenant-keeping God who gives David all the good that he has in his life. And nothing good can come to him apart from God. We know that truth in, in James chapter 1. It says every good and perfect gift comes from above. Every perfect gift comes from God. Nothing good comes to us apart from through God. And therefore, in the eyes of David, God is worthy and he's therefore able to be relied upon as a personal God. Moving on. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Let's not forget that David is the king of Israel. He has a responsibility in this theocratic kingdom. Bo English is not the prime minister of Israel. They have a, a religious leader and a king in one. This is a theocracy. And David governs the people according to the civil and the moral laws of God. He functions as a, a shepherd king over the house of God, of the house of Israel. And in doing this, in this role, he points to the greater shepherd king, Jesus. David says that he delights in the saints, the set-apart ones, the true believers. They are precious to him. There's a point of application, I believe, in that for us. Do you, and can you, delight in other believers? Be truly thankful to God that you have other Christians in your life. That they are a blessing to you. Can you thank God for those people? I don't know about you, but I have a lot of non-Christian friends, but I find from, from time to time when I'm just around them, my life is far poorer. That life is takes on a certain kind of richness when there are people that share something in common with you, the greatest thing possible, faith in, faith in Christ. Can you thank God? Do you thank God for those that you've put around you? Or do you just simply complain about them? Maybe we can pull another application out of it then. Are you seeking to live a Christian life in a loving way that is pleasing to God and other Christians can be thankful for you? Or are you just simply a pain? Not pointing my finger at anyone in particular. Probably I should point it at myself. But uh, it's true. They are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. 
David then switches gears from talking about these true believers in the land. Believers in the true God, he switches gears and starts talking about unbelievers, specifically those that participate in idolatry. Verse 4, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. They drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. This is a condemnation of the worship of anything other than the true God of Scripture. And if you look at it closely, you look at verse 4 closely, you'll see that he's listing the first three commandments. He's listing the first three commandments. David defines false worship in terms of the first three of the Ten Commandments. They run after false gods. This is against the first commandment, which is, you shall have no other god but me. It says they provide an offering of blood. This would be some kind of animal sacrifice or even a human sacrifice. This is offered up to an idol. So this goes against the second commandment, which forbids making a created God and serving it. And then lastly, there's the taking of the name of the false God on the lips in worship which violates the third commandment, not to blaspheme God's name. Contrary to popular belief, saying OMG or Hollywood and TV shows that frequently use the name of God, that's not the only way to blaspheme God's name. We do that when we worship false things with our hearts instead of the true God who alone is worthy of worship. That is another way that you you blaspheme God's name. So we look at this. We see blood sacrifices. We look at verse 4 and say, How on earth does this have anything to do with me? I know when you see the word idols... In scripture, you look at places like Isaiah, it becomes very easy to form an image in your mind of simply someone slaughtering a chicken out in a backwards third world country in front of some sort of stone idol. Paul says in Romans chapter 1 verse 21, For though they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. Verse 25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator. No chickens in view in that text. I'm using the ridiculous of it for a very specific purpose that we can realize that this can apply also to us. Anything that we love more than God is an idol. And I know you've heard that from this pulpit before. In the words of Tim Keller, if there is something you feel you must have to be happy that is more important to your heart than God himself, that is an idol. That could be anything. Anything. That could be approval. That could be money. That can be reputation. That can be a relationship. That can be a person in your life. That could be something material. The possibilities are endless. 
All sin against God begins with the making of an idol, some sort of false god in our hearts. And naturally, like these people in verse 4 that is easy for us to dismiss as crazy and backwards, we too do the same thing. We naturally want to run and chase after idols, things that are created, things that are not worthy of being worshipped. David says that the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. This is not to say that when we participate in idolatry, that there won't be some level of prosperity in this life. We saw that in Psalm 73 two weeks ago. Sometimes people live very prosperous lives apart from the true God. But two things we know, two places sorrow comes. Firstly, that their hearts will never truly be satisfied because our hearts have been created to find its peace and its deepest longing secure in God. Not in a thing, not in a person, not in money, not in approval, not in reputation, nowhere else. And secondly, sorrows multiply because the rejection of the true God will bring with it punishment and perishing and the misery of hell in the next life. Rightful condemnation for subjecting God. What's this got to do with David right now? I believe that David here is going back to his prayer in verse 1, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. David is praying, he is asking, he is wishing that he be kept from falling into idol worship because he knows nothing good happens. Keep my faith in God strong because it is far better. And he begins reflecting on all the good that he has. Verse 5, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. God is his inheritance. Yahweh, the God of the universe, is his inheritance. We talked about uh, two two weeks ago and the same idea, the idea of a, a portion is the land that you inherit that belongs to your family. We see that in verse 6. He says, You hold my lot, and the lines are fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. It's talking about the language of a section. The lines, my lot is good. The lines are fallen in good places. The area that belongs to me, the area that my family own, my portion of land, It has fallen for me in pleasant places. I have a beautiful inheritance. That inheritance is God. David is saying, I do not need idols. I have God. I have a beautiful inheritance. God is beautiful to me. God is valuable for me. God is the giver. My gift is the giver himself. I don't need stuff. I don't need my heart to be set on material things or created things. I have the giver of all good things. And therefore, he does not need to run after idols. Something there for us to learn, right? 
think about what you have. And you realize that that which you do not have is minor in comparison. It begins in verse 7 to, to worship God for the blessings of this life. I'll try and speed this up now as we, we come to, in my my mind, the very, very good part. It's all good, but there's a very, very good part coming up that's quoted in the New Testament. In verse 7, he says, I bless the Lord. That's worship. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. God could be said to give David counsel in, in three main ways. Firstly, through men and women, such as the prophet Nathan, that story when David sinned against uh, God by committing adultery with Bathsheba, getting her pregnant, having her husband killed, he was confronted by the prophet Nathan. Even though he did not enjoy that conversation, it was good to him. It was something that God needed to give him, to bring him back onto a path of righteousness. That's one way David received counsel. Second one would be through the the word of God and his commands. And thirdly, David, as a believer, had the Holy Spirit. Even in the Old Testament, yes, he had the Spirit of God in his life to convict him, to encourage him, to illuminate the truth. David needs the counsel of God. He says, I bless the Lord. I worship the Lord who gives me counsel. This goes back again to that prayer in verse 1. He needs God to help him out to keep him in the faith. He's needy. He acknowledges that. He goes on to say, at night my heart also instructs me. This is one of those phrases that we can often just overlook, and it's actually such a a rich thing. Most likely as king, David has got many, many stresses in his life, and I know many of us uh, can understand that. David is kept awake at night due to stresses, and he turns to prayer. At night, my heart also instructs me. God delights in casting, when we cast our cares and our anxieties upon Him. If you find yourself awake at night, unable to sleep, worried, with anxiety, feeling stressed out, you have a real example here in David of someone that, by his heart, prays out to God and asks for help. Don't let those moments just go by. There's another opportunity here to worship God and seek Him. Verse 8, I've set the Lord always before me. Because He is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Even amidst David's sins, and I've just explained the, the probably the most horrendous one that he committed with Bathsheba and, and Uriah, God had an amazing place of honor in his life. I've set the Lord always before me. David is an example not of a perfect man, but a humble man, a man who repents of sin despite how bad it is. David commits the kind of sin that people would simply run away from. 
There would be so much shame, so much embarrassment, but instead he owns it, he repents, and he moves on, thanking God for the forgiveness of sin. You can read about this very specifically in Psalm uh, 51. So we can see here in in verses 7 and 8, three ways in which David is worshipping God. Firstly, that there's praise from his heart and his mouth. He blesses the Lord. Secondly, in prayer. And thirdly, the place of honor that David gives to God in his life. And now, verses 9 to 11. I love these. God is worshipped. For the blessings of eternal life. Verse 9. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. If God is our inheritance, that means we are secure. Many of you love Romans chapter 8, do we not? Like it is a wonderful passage of scripture. Some people say that sanctification, growth in grace, is the key theme in Romans 8. I don't believe it is. The key theme in Romans chapter 8 is the security of the believer in God's hands. That nothing can separate me from the love of God. This is David doing an Old Testament version of that. And this matches David's joy matches that prayer that is right back in verse 1. Nothing can separate David for all eternity in this life and the next. He says, my flesh dwells secure and therefore my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices even amidst the difficulty in this life. Because God is mine. I said this a few weeks ago. And I want to repeat it. If you are a Christian by faith in Christ, Christ is your life. You are said to be in Christ. Paul says that about 70 times in the New Testament. You are in Christ. You are secure. You can no more be thrown from God's blessing than Christ be thrown from heaven. And I truly mean that. It's truth. God would need to, if we are in Christ, God would need to remove his blessings from his son, Jesus Christ, for us to be removed. We are secure by faith in Christ. Verse 10. This is the part that gets quoted in the New Testament. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Sheol in the Hebrew and we'll see in the New Testament Hades in the Greek is the place where the soul and body separate when people die. The flesh and the soul separate, and the soul, the bodies remain in the ground, and the soul goes. You can read about this in uh, Luke 16. We read there that in uh, Sheol or Hades, there are two places, two parts of Sheol a place for the righteous and one for the unrighteous. And what David is saying is, You will not abandon me there. 
He's not saying you can't die, but he says you will not dwell forever apart from God in some sort of holding place. That is what being said. You will not abandon my soul there. But the bit that comes next is interesting. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. Do we know where this is going? Do we see where this is going? You will not let your Holy One see corruption. This is talking, and I don't mean to be to be crude here, it is in Scripture, this is talking about a body decaying in the ground. That's what it means to let your body see corruption. A decaying body six feet under. He says, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Now how is this talking about David? Is this talking about David? That you will not let your Holy One see corruption. What do you think? Yes and no. Is it talking about David? Yes and no. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Acts chapter 2. I'm going to read a good section of this and just see how the New Testament uses it. This verse is quoted by the Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 2 and is quoted by the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 13. Verse 22 of Acts chapter 2. Peter says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus God delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And now he explains, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with him with an oath that his, one of his descendants would be set upon his throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. And very briefly in Acts 13 verse 36, For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. 
But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that though through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Peter and Paul both use Psalm 16 and say that it is referring, first of all, to Christ. That Jesus Christ was not abandoned to Sheol and is, he is the Holy One whose body did not see corruption. David, great man that he was, died. And Peter says his tomb is still with us to this day. In a place called uh, Siloam in Jerusalem. David has a tomb. He is dead. His soul is currently in Sheol. He is awaiting the resurrection of his body. But Christ, he died, and his body did not see corruption. He was raised from the dead. He is alive. What this means is when David is writing Psalm 16, he is writing a prophecy. He knows one is coming after him that will be greater than him. He knows that someone from his line will be set upon the throne and rule forevermore. He knows that. He knows that. That's written in 2 Samuel 7. David understands that he is not the big deal, but there will be one after him, a Messiah, whose flesh would not see corruption, who is being talked about in Psalm 16. It is Christ. Because Christ has been raised from the dead, because his body has not seen corruption like everyone else who dies, he is able to forgive sins and he is able to forgive us. Everything that we could not be freed by the law of Moses. And this is a cause of great joy and celebration. When we saw in verse 4, of Psalm 16, those idolaters that have broken the first commandment, the second commandment, the third commandment, we have to, along with David, put ourselves in that category. That each one of us has gone our own way and forsaken the true God for that which is false. We require forgiveness. And it comes to us in Christ who died in our place for our sins and is raised again. This is one of those 300 plus prophecies in the Old Testament that has come true. But if it's just a prophecy, does this mean it has nothing to do with David? It's clearly talking about Christ. Paul and Peter both tell us this is talking about Christ. But I would argue also that it does have something to do with David and it does have something to do with us. Verse 11 says, You make known to me the path of life in your presence there is fullness of joy at your right hand a pleasures forevermore. This prophecy has three fulfillments, not just one. Written hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ died. It does have a fulfillment of Christ at the cross. Not seeing corruption. Not having his soul abandoned to Sheol. But also, it has a fulfillment for David. Also, 
It has a fulfillment for us, the Christian. That's why I asked that 1 Corinthians 15 be read. This is the great hope of the Christian life, that because Christ has been raised, we too will rise when he returns. That death does not get the final say, but because Christ rose from the grave, we too will rise. Therefore, you look at verse 10, it says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. That refers to Christ, that refers to David, and it refers to you. If you are a believer, you will be made holy through the gospel of forgiveness, Christ's righteousness attributed to your account. And one day, yes, you will die. But at the return of Christ, you will be raised up also. And therefore, David is able to say, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The New Testament expands on this. Paul in Colossians 3. I'm going to finish with this. Paul in Colossians 3, remembering here now what David has said, that at your right hand are pleasures forevermore, at the right hand of God. Paul says in Colossians 3 verse 1, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. The Christian has such an amazing union with Christ that by faith, We are said to be in Christ. Paul says that Christ is our life. Where is Christ now? He is seated at the right hand of God. What does David say? At the right hand of God are pleasures forevermore. Though we yet live in this city, though we yet struggle with sin, we are positionally righteous. We are forgiven. We are seated with Christ at the right hand of God now. We are secure with Him. We are not in the process of becoming something that we are not. Christians are not becoming righteous, a righteousness that we do not have. We have a righteousness that is seated at the right hand of God and we are in the process of becoming what we already have positionally in Christ. Because of this, we can say there is no condemnation. Because of this, we can say that we have a hope. That one day, because Christ was raised, your body will be resurrected as well. You can say, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. You can say that that referred to Christ, but it will also one day refer to you and me. The Gospel Christ is so clearly seen in the psalm. It is rich. It is deep. What do we do? What do we do with it? Well, David says, In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let us be reminded that there is no pleasure, there is no lasting joy in idols. 
there was no lasting joy apart from God. But we have a beautiful inheritance if we have Christ. And therefore, we can worship, we can pursue joy, we can pray, we can have hope, and we can look ahead to the fact that one day, God will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One be corruption. And the proof of that is the fact that it did not happen to Christ. The proof that you you will not see corruption is because Christ rose from the dead. As surely as that historically happened 2,000 years ago, that will be true of you as well. That is the deepest longings of the human heart taken care of. Let's pray.